Come and listen to a story about a man named Amos. A poor southern farmer, the farthest thing from famous. And then one day heard a voice in the wind. God said the North needs to hear that they have sinned. Against God, that is. Broke covenant, you see. Well, the first thing you know, old Amos on his way. Headed to the north so they'd hear what God would say. He said, Bethel and Samaria is where he ought to be. So he asked for God to guide him and visions he did see. Tons of them. Locust swarms and firestorms. Amaziah thought goodbye to Amos and his gloom. He tattled to the king, Amos says that we're all doomed. That's true, said God's man Amos, but there's a happy ending. First God brings down a condemned house, but then he starts the mending. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. In 1866, Gustave Doré drew this picture of the prophet Amos. This picture. And this is Amos looking over the valleys, the hills of his hometown of Tekoa. It's a lovely image. But when I picture Amos, I picture Jed Clampett. <laughs> Perhaps dressed in overalls with a weed sticking out of his mouth, not the weed you're thinking of, the, the, the good kind. And he's standing in Times Square in the middle of New York City. Can you picture it? We know that Amos was from the tiny southern kingdom of Judah. His occupation, he was a sheep herder and a fig farmer. His preacher school training, absolutely none. Sounds just like the kind of LinkedIn bio that God uses to accomplish his work. You remember that he looked over all the strapping lads that were in the house of Jesse, and he went straight to the young, ruddy shepherd boy and named him the future king. And you may remember that there were lots and lots of possible contenders based upon how great they were and what they had accomplished to be named in notoriety in the annals of history through the Bible. But it was Rahab, and it was Bathsheba, and it was people whose stories were not spoken politely in parties that God used in the genealogical record that leads to Christ. And so, from the small southern Judean town of Tekoa, God calls an unpedigreed, non-refined, non-conformist named Amos. And he douses him with visions. And I mean visions. Some are very, very simple and easy, like a bowl of fruit. And then you've got visions like a swarm of locusts or a fire that burns up the ocean. Visions of God holding in his hand a cord with a weight attached. A plumb line used to decide what is exactly straight. And the message there is, you're not being straight with me, so I am going to straighten you out. That's all in Amos chapter 7. Now, leading up to this chapter, Amos gives a scathing rebuke against a generation that thinks the achievements of their forefathers and the tradition that they inherited afford them the gravy train of God's prosperity. 
regardless of what's really going on in their hearts and minds. And so Amos gives a series of woes. Woe to you who think you live on easy street in Zion. Woe to you who are on your high horse. Look around. Look how the mighty all around you are fallen and behold your God. Because the God of angel armies says, I hate the arrogance of Jacob. I'm about to hand over the city and everyone in it. What could make God feel this way about his own people, his own home, Israel? God tells us through his prophet Amos, you've made shambles of justice, a bloated corpse of righteousness. Did you think you could get away with it? That somehow you could get by unnoticed? On the contrary, Amos 1 and verse 2, God roars from Zion and he shouts from Jerusalem. And over in verse 3 and chapter 3, the lion has roared, who will not fear? He who forms the mountains and creates the wind, Amos 4, 13. He who declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. So Amos begins to make a list of cities in chapter 1 that you might assume or think should be on the naughty list. I mean, we don't know much. Maybe you don't remember much about Damascus or Moab or Ammon, but however you slice it, God makes it real plain by the middle of chapter 2. Amos has a word from the Lord against his own people of Judah. And it ain't pretty. They rejected God's revelation. They refused to keep my commands. And for that, says Yahweh, for that, I'm burning down Judah. I'm burning down all the forts of Jerusalem. It's always good to clean your own plate before you tell mama that Judah uh, Jr. hasn't finished his supper. And so after sharing a dire warning about Judah, Amos launches into Israel. Do you know what's become of God's own people? They buy and sell humans and think of them as a way to make money. They sell a poor man for a pair of shoes, Amos says in chapter 2. They sell their own grandmother. They grind the penniless into dirt, and the stuff they've extorted from the poor is piled up at the shrine of their God while they sit around drinking wine that they conned from their victims. Do you know what they are? They're selfish. They say, when's my next paycheck so I can go and live it up? How long until the weekend comes when I can go and have a good time? Selfishness results from self-centeredness. You can see where their focus lies. So in chapter 6, Amos gives a series of woes. Listen to this paraphrase. Woe to the playboys, the playgirls who think life is a party held just for them. Woe to those addicted to feeling good, those obsessed with looking good. They couldn't care less about others. They turn justice into wormwood. They cast down righteousness to the earth. In fact, the Lord says in Amos 3 and verse 10, they don't know how to do Right. 
So God begins to call them names. And I can't for the chance to say to the big city braggarts what God was giving him to say. He calls them Ashdod. He calls them Egypt. He calls them fat cows of Bashan. And he says, I'm keeping track of their every last sin. Now, you need to understand that for God, this is the last straw. He has been patient. Oh, so patient with his children. I mean, over the years, he's overlooked many a transgression. Some small, some big. That time when they they cut their sister's hair in their sleep. That time they stuck out of the window when they weren't supposed to and they forgot they were on the second story. So someone had to stay up all night at the ER witnessing all the stitches and covering all the bills. That time that their gambling debts got so big that someone had to bail them out yet again. Oh, he's been patient. But what he was dealing with now was just so out of control. And so people were being hurt and God's reputation was being dragged through the mud. And when he could stand it no longer, he warned them, but they wouldn't listen. He punished them lightly and then a bit more and then a bit more, but they wouldn't budge. He says in Amos, I took away your bread and you wouldn't come to me. I held back the rain from you and you wouldn't come to me. I struck you with blight and mildew, even your fig trees. Oh, not the fig trees, says Amos, the fig farmer. Yes, your fig trees and your olive trees. The locust devoured them all, but you still would not come to me. It gets worse. He says, I sent plagues upon you like I sent upon Egypt. I took some of your lives. I stole some of your horses and you still wouldn't Come to me. And so the God of angel armies in Amos 6 and verse 14 says, Enjoy it while you can, Israelites. I've got a pagan army on the move for you, and it's going to make hash of you from one end of the country to the other. The days are coming when they're going to tie you up and they're going to haul you off. And on that day, I'm going to make Israel pay for their sins. You want to know how bad it's going to get? Amos 8 says, think of the worst thing that could happen. Maybe your child being murdered. That's a hint. That and much more. Perhaps the most ominous words in all of Amos to make his point is Amos 4 and verse 12. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Well, by now you can tell that Amos was not exactly the top invite for the summer sermon series in the villages of Israel at that time. In fact, one guy named Amaziah over in Bethel sent an email to King Jeroboam. And he said, Amos is plotting to get rid of you and he's doing it as an insider working within Israel to destroy the country. He's got to be silenced. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying you're going to be killed and we're going to be taken away in exile. And then Amaziah sends a text to Amos. Get on out of here. You're not from around here. Go back to the sheep where you came from. This, this is the north. 
This is the king's chapel. This is a royal shrine. And we northerners were often thought as uppity, but that's only because we really don't like you. And that's when Amos opens up his own Facebook page and offers this open letter reply to Amaziah. He even changes the audience from friends to public just to make the point. Dear Amaziah, Jeroboam, all my friends who happen to live in the land of Israel, listen up. I never set out to be a preacher. I never wanted to be a preacher. I was a sheep herder and a fig farmer. But God called me from the farm and said, preach to my people Israel. So listen up to God's word. You say, don't preach to Israel. Don't say anything against Isaac, but listen to what God's telling you. Your wife is going to become the whore in town. Your children are going to get killed. Your land's going to be auctioned off. You will die homeless and friendless, and Israel will be hauled off to exile far from home. What a message. We need to hear Amos's message. We need to hear it because we too are insiders. We too are so often resting on our laurels and think that belonging to the right team or having the right pedigree is what defines us, what makes us who we are. And like the coach's kid that always plays second base, regardless of how bad he is, we can get used to thinking that that silver spoon in our mouths is deserved. And who cares how I treat my neighbor? If you want a quick snapshot of Amos's PowerPoint presentations, these are his top bullet points. Number one, there is only one God. Amos doesn't acknowledge any other deity. Pay no attention to any other rival claim. Nope, you've got one father and you've been ignoring him. Number two, life and death are bound up with seeking the Lord and him alone. He says it several times in chapter five, seek the Lord and live. In fact, here's the first sign of hope. Seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord of hosts will be with you. Hate evil, love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now, maybe you're thinking, why didn't they all just go to church and do all five acts of worship right and maybe curry some of the Lord's favor? Well, if you wonder about that, you need to read chapter four again. Bring your sacrifices for morning worship. Every third day, bring your tithe. Burn pure sacrifices if you want to. That's the sort of religious show you Israelites just love. Listen to the very next chapter, Amos 5, beginning in verse 21. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn activities. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't even look at them. Take them away from me. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
Well, that brings us to number three. Seeking the Lord is not found in religious rituals. It's found in righteousness. It's possible to be religious and not righteous. It's possible to seek the Lord the same way pagans seek after their deities, by turning a god into their image and then paying homage so that they don't have to ever change who they are. It's not that God really hates rituals. He prescribed too many of them for that to be the case. It's that ceremony and ritual are only extensions of who we are. The sacrificial lamb represents a sacrificial heart. If we're not who we say we are, ceremony and ritual are vain and empty. But here lies the rub. We expect point number four to be something like, so get busy doing all the right things the right way and everything will be hunky-dory. Hunky-dory is the exact wording in the text. But we are not going to hear that because we're New Testament Christians and we already know the ace in the hole that God has been carrying around in his pocket. There's a quote in the New Testament book of Romans chapter 3 that's actually from the Old Testament. Listen to this. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, no, not one. But isn't that the starting point for the gospel? You can't trust in your good deeds to save you. You're getting it all right. Your achievements before God. Salvation doesn't come through anything of which I can boast. That's Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Not my religious deeds, not my doing everything right. And that brings me to Amos point number four. If there's ever going to be a good word, a happy ending to this story, it will not be a story about you and me. It'll be a story about God. We've looked at the prophets long enough to know that judgment and annihilation is never his last word. He's a covenant-keeping God. And when we are faithless, says Paul to Timothy, it will, he himself is faithful. We're talking about his children and his banner over us is love. So in the final chapter, the same Amos who has been breathing down these threats, who's been describing a terrible day of the Lord, comes to his last vision, his last lesson, the last word that God wants to leave with us. Amos begins by assuring us that he wasn't joking about what he said before. God's going to level the place. He's got his eye on the kingdom of sin. He's going to wipe it off the face of the earth, chapter 9, verse 8. But look at the last line of that verse. Still, I won't totally destroy the family of Jacob, declares the Lord. Instead, God's going to throw everything and everyone into a sifter. He's going to shake it good. He's going to shake out all the sin and everyone who wants to cling to their sin. But something survives the sifter. No real piece of grain is going to be lost. 
And then God gives Amos one last word. And as always, it's a word of hope. It's not about the goodness of you or me. It's not about the goodness of the remnant. It's all about the goodness of God. On that judgment day, Amos 9 verse 11, I'll restore David's house that's fallen to pieces. I'll fix the holes in the roof. I'll replace the broken glass in the windows. I'll fix it up like new. David's people will be strong again. And everywhere you look will be blessings. Blessings like wine pouring off the mountains. They'll rebuild the ruined cities. They'll plant vineyards and drink good wine. They'll work their gardens and eat fresh vegetables. And I will plant them. Plant them in a new land. They'll never again be uprooted from the land that I gave them. God, your God, says it's true. I can't help but hear the gospel in Amos. I hear the call to live out the kingdom of God. I see that where whatever is done to the least of these Christ's brothers is done to him. I see that God desires mercy far above sacrifice. I hear the Sermon on the Mount ringing in my ears and the call for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. I hear all of that, the high ethical demand of those who belong to King Jesus. I hear it. But I hear this as well. For a righteous man, some would dare to die. But God commends his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, two verses later, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. That God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become, here's the word we've been looking for, the righteousness of God. And one day, as the Apostle Paul said, with tears in his eyes and joy in his heart, one day I will be found in him, not having a righteousness that is of my own, but that which is through faith or through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And I hear this too. Amos isn't just in the Old Testament. We find the end of Amos quoted in the book of Acts, chapter 15. You remember that these people have gathered together because they hear that God is doing a work and a wonder. They hear stories about Gentiles coming to faith, and so they have to have a come-together meeting to figure out what they're going to do about this. And they're arguing back and forth until James stands up. And James says, I'll tell you what I'm hearing. You're telling me that God is gathering the nations? You're telling me God is doing a work to bring people together? You're telling me that there's room enough in God's house for all these other people? God must have rebuilt the home. Reminds me of Amos chapter 9, says James. God says he will restore the tent of David that has fallen. He'll make room for the Gentiles. For you and me, in keeping with the gospel that was preached to Abraham in Genesis 12, that through 
me, which works through your seed, all the nations of the earth will not be cursed, but all the nations of the earth will find blessing. And one day it'll be true. Everywhere we look, all we will see is blessing. And it's not because of you. And it's not because of me. It's because of the goodness of God. Hear the gospel in Amos. Remember the prophetic message from Jed Clampett. Come and listen to a story about a man named Amos. A poor southern farmer, the farthest thing from famous. And then one day heard a voice in the wind. God said the north needs to hear that they have sinned. Against God, that is. Broke covenant, you see. Well, the first thing you know, old Amos on his way. Headed to the north so they'd hear what God would say. He said, Bethel and Samaria is where he ought to be. So he asked for God to guide him and visions he did see. Tons of them. Locust swarms and firestorms. Amaziah thought goodbye to Amos and his gloom. He tattled to the king. Amos says that we're all doomed. That's true, said God's man Amos, but there's a happy ending. First God brings down a condemned house, but then he starts the mending. We'll plant new trees and sit a spell. Take off our shoes on holy ground. And judgment will never come back now. You hear? Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.